following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. We're starting a series today about justice, called Justice Rolls Down, and you might wonder why now, a week after Easter, are we deciding to talk about justice? But as we saw last week, the resurrection teaches us, one of the things that it teaches us is that God shows no partiality between people. Um, That's what Peter said in his sermon in Acts 10 that we looked at last week, and it also also teaches us that we are to be raised with Christ. This is the phrase that Paul uses in, in his letters to describe our relationship to the resurrection, which is a really uh, profound thing to imagine somebody saying about the most sacred event of a, of a religious tradition's history, that, that you ordinary people are smack in the middle of it and part of it. You are raised with Christ. And we said last week that just as Abraham was called and blessed by God so that he could be a blessing to other nations, we who are raised with Christ are raised so that we can raise up other people. We need to do that in a way that does not show partiality in, in accordance with the, the teaching of, of Peter. And that's why we say that the resurrection actually leads right into this topic of justice, of equity for all people. And as many or most of you know, also justice is one of artisans' core foundational values. We have five values that have always determined who we are and what we do and what we're about. And justice is one of those values. Um, And this is what we say about justice. This is our statement of the justice value. We are captivated by the heart of God for hurting people and a suffering creation, seeking to bring compassion to those needs and a just end to their underlying causes. This is one of the five key statements that defines who we are as a people. And so we're going to spend the next several weeks talking uh, about justice. And our key verse for this series, our title verse, if you will, is Amos 5.24. It says, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I love that that water imagery. It's, It's so bound up in who we are as Christians, as baptized people, and it's just a beautiful picture of, of God's justice rolling down like waters. Now, this, this language comes from the prophets of Israel, and we're going to look at the, the, that section of Scripture next week. But it's important to realize at the outset of this series that the sentiment that's contained in this verse, that call to let justice roll down like waters, is present everywhere in Scripture. It truly is an unavoidable call placed on all of God's people. There is an unbreakable link, I would suggest, between being oriented toward God and being oriented toward the other, toward neighbors and enemies, toward friends and strangers, even toward the world and the creation that we live in. This link between being oriented toward God and being oriented toward the other is constantly expressed, told over and over again throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we start today with the the beginnings of the Bible, with the section of Scripture that we'll call the Torah, looking at justice in the Torah. And then next week we'll look, as I hinted a moment ago, at at how justice is expressed in the prophets. In the third week of this series, we're going to have a really fascinating uh, panel discussion and interactive 
conversation that our friends Shane and Jenny are going to lead and facilitate um, as people who are really doing a great job in their own lives and in their ministry um, as Christians living out this value of justice. And then in the fourth week of the series, we'll look at what, what is said by Jesus in the Gospels and, and how justice is expressed and taught in the end of all things in what, what theologians call the eschaton, the ending. So that's the, the sketch of what we're going to do in the next four weeks. So today is justice in the Torah. And what is Torah? Well, Torah is often translated as, with the word law. Um, it's actually more like teaching than, than law. But law is certainly part of it. When I say Torah, what I mean is the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch, which is a cool word to say. It's like uh, five Canadian hats. Um, <laughs> Pentateuch? No? <laughs> um, the books of Moses, as they're sometimes called. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, and within those five books, I want to identify this morning three major movements. The first movement is creation and call. The second movement is Exodus, which is also one of the names of the book. Um, and the the third movement is law. And uh, incidentally, if you are a really um, tuned-in Bible person, you may have wondered when I was sketching out these four weeks of the series why I didn't say anything about the wisdom literature of the Bible, which is a really fun part of the, of the scriptures, um, often overlooked because it is, it is so uh, figurative and uh, in many cases hard to nail down. <laughs> And if you look at it the wrong way and expect the wrong things of it, it can be challenging because it seems to contradict itself in certain ways and so forth. Um, I love that part of the scriptures, and I wouldn't leave it out. But what we actually find is that, that the wisdom literature parallels the, the law in a really interesting way. The law talks about disobedience and obedience and the consequences of that. And wisdom literature talks about wisdom and folly and the consequences of living your life uh, wisely or foolishly. And those two things run in parallel, and you see a lot of the same language used throughout. So what we t- when we talk about law briefly this morning, that will, that will have to do to cover um, the uh, wisdom literature. So what I want to do, uh, and I'm talking faster than usual because I have more pages than usual, um, is I want to start at the, the end of this section of Scripture in Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy... Uh, is the second telling of this of the of the the word the law? Um, it's the last book in the in the five books of the Pentateuch of the Torah, and what happens here is Moses gives a a uh, reflective sermon on the borders of the Promised Land, when which he's not going to be allowed to enter because of a certain disobedience that he uh, did. But Joshua was going to lead the people in. But he's on the cusp of the promised land, and they're about to go. And he, what he wants to do is sit them down. The whole community comes around, and he tells them the whole story of their experience together as God's people. And he recites to them the law, again, which was given in some of the earlier books of, of the Torah. So it's basically a restatement of everything. And the topic sentence of this sermon, if you will pardon the uh, English class expression, is found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9, but especially verses 4 and 5. And so if you want to uh, 
pull that open, you can, or you can just listen. Either way is fine. This, this little section of scripture is known as the Shema, the Shema Israel, which is, just means, hear, O Israel. It's the first words of, of this um, little bit of text. And uh, I'm going to read chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So the Shema is a call to allegiance to the one true God who is one. This is the core of the Torah. It's the core of everything in this section of Scripture. Um, And it comes at the end because Moses is looking back at everything else. It's all about allegiance to God. And you may wonder now, why is allegiance to God so crucial? Why would we be talking about that when the topic of the day and of the series is actually justice? Well, the reason is that allegiance to God with heart, soul, strength inevitably flows into obedience, which equals justice. Just as idolatry or false allegiance to false gods leads into and flows into disobedience and injustice. Now, Jesus affirms this connection in the Gospels. When they come and ask him, what is the greatest commandment of all? He quotes the Shema first. And he also quotes another part of the Torah. He quotes something from the book of Leviticus. And he adds and connects these two ideas together. So it's the love of the Lord your God with all your heart and everything else. Then he also says, what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Which a lot of us attribute to Jesus, but which is actually found in Leviticus, the scariest book in the whole Bible. (laughs) And that brilliant thing is that Jesus connects those two things together. And so for us, we must assume that they are innately linked to begin with. Okay, so with that ending concept, which is, comes in Deuteronomy uh, in mind, let's go back to the beginning and see what principles are laid out in the very start of the story, in the creation accounts and in the call of Abraham. Um, we'll get to Genesis 12 in a second, but I want to I start even earlier than that with Genesis 1. This is the first story of creation in the, in the Bible, and these key verses... Um, are 26 and 27. God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. It goes on to say, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, I don't have time to go into the the details of of text and translation, but if you had a different translation of the Bible, you may have slightly different words there. Our translation, the New Revised Standard, um, in accordance uh, with, or in agreement with some other modern translations, um, makes it clear that that first word uh, is not man as in a, a male person. It's actually man as in all of man, like humanity. That's why humankind is used in this translation. So all of humankind is made in God's image. It's not just Adam, the one, 
man. It's not just men. And it's actually not just, as we see going forward here in a minute, the people whom God selectively and especially chooses and blesses. There's to be equity among all humans, regardless of gender or ethnicity or age. And nowadays we also know that we should add things like appearance and sexual orientation and economic status. These are the dividing walls that are more common among us now. But none of the dividing walls are big enough to separate anybody from the fact that they are made in God's image. All people, regardless of who they are, what they've done, where they've come from, are made imago dei, is the Latin phrase, in the image of God. Now that imago dei concept is reiterated in the genealogy that comes in Genesis 5, as you see these things descending, these people descending down from Adam and Eve. It's also reiterated in the covenant that God made with Noah following the flood story. That image of God is specifically called out in both of those places. So it's a very important point. This is a foundational, uh, basic point to an understanding of everything that follows in Scripture. And it really is foundational to our understanding of how we ought to be in relationship with each other, which is all about justice. So a minute ago when I put up the, the artisan's statement of justice, you may have noticed that we also include creation in that value, and you may have wondered why. Why do we include the phrase a suffering creation in our, in our justice statement? Well, I think that is found in these early stories as well, in the creation uh, accounts and in other places. But if you, if you were to go on one verse from where we just were in Genesis to Genesis one twenty eight. It says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And then in the next creation story in Genesis 2, verses 7 through 9, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the middle of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Skip ahead to verse 15. Here's the key. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. So people are given, in the first story, dominion over all of creation. And in the second story, they're given the charge to till and keep it, to care for it. The word dominion, um, by the way, doesn't mean domination. Like we're going to make everything in in the planet submit to our will and bend to our needs. If that were it, we'd we'd be doing a a heck of a good job fulfilling the commandment. Dominion is more like, think of a king ruling over a kingdom and being charged with its care and its oversight. That's what we're given for the whole earth. So Yahweh was a hippie. Interestingly enough, that theme is also reiterated after the flood, just like the Imago Dei image of God was reiterated. The theme of care for it is also reiterated. 
In fact, God makes a covenant with Noah, and he goes on to say he's making a covenant with every living creature that is with you. The birds, the domestic animals, every animal of the earth, as many as came out of the ark. That new, that, that, that new covenant that he makes with Noah, promises never to destroy the earth again, is not just for Noah and the people. It is also for the animals and the, and the creation. So I think justice, both for, for others and for our concern for the world around us, is built right into the creation story. I also think, and I touched on this last week, so I'll be brief on it today, that it, it's built into the call of Abraham. When God called Abraham and, his, and said he would bless his family and that his descendants would be made a great nation, he would bless them, not just for their own sake, but why? So they could be what? A blessing to others. That is the heart of the call to Abraham and his family. You are blessed to be a blessing. That's in Genesis 12.2. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And that call and the purpose that goes along with it are restated again and again and again. Genesis 18, Genesis 22, Genesis 26, Genesis 28. It's clear. The call on God's people is so they can be blessed for the purpose of being a blessing to others around them. So that's the first movement of Scripture, creation and call. The second movement that I want to talk about in the Torah is Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus uh, contains most of this story. Exodus is the story of God redeeming Israel from slavery in Egypt. And uh, even people who've never been in church a day in their life probably know this story from one movie or another. Um, And that's fine. It's a a decent way to get the story, at least the basics of it. But what you have to understand about Exodus the Israelites, is that the Exodus story became the central story in their whole understanding of, of their history. It had left an indelible mark on their uh, religious memory, if you will. And it becomes for them, and I think it could serve this function for us as well, a lens through which you can see and understand the nature of salvation. See, the biblical vision of salvation, uh, in my opinion, is much broader than what we have shaved it down to become. A lot of us who have grown up in the American evangelical church think of salvation as that one moment at the Billy Graham crusade, right, where you're kneeling and you pray that prayer, and two seconds ago you weren't saved, and in the time it took you to say it, now you are saved, and that's all that really matters. What happened before is in the past, and anything that happens in the future is fine, but all but it, the most important thing, that moment, that's salvation. That is not a biblical view of salvation, in my opinion. Biblical vision of salvation is, and I apologize for using a kind of a buzzy word, but it's holistic. It affects not only your eternal soul, but your actual life and the the persons around you and the social order and the natural world if your salvation has not resulted in any of any of that fruit if you will you know maybe try it again (laughs) 
Salvation is both deliverance and restoration. Even speaking in purely spiritual terms, you can see that this is true, and if you read some of the, the great fathers and mothers of, of our faith, you will see that this is true. I especially turn to John Wesley in times like this and look at his, his uh, description not only of justification, that is being made right with God, but of sanctification, which is this process for the rest of your life of being made holy and being made like him and being set apart for his use, blessed to be a blessing, if you will. And all of that is contained in, in the Exodus model of salvation, which goes something like this. The people who are oppressed, the Israelites, cry out to God. God hears them. God responds. God intervenes on behalf of the oppressed people. Fascinatingly, there is human participation in bringing this about. In the case of the Exodus story, of course, it's Moses. God calls Moses to bring my people out of Egypt. And that verb, bring, is the same verb that he's just used of himself saying, I will bring my people out of Egypt. Co-laborers. The people are redeemed and then very importantly, the people respond with love, allegiance, obedience. That is the salvation model as it's laid out in Exodus. And this model is called out throughout the Old Testament whenever the people of God encounter a new form of oppression. They, rec they recall this story. And actually, as we'll see next week, whenever they are failing to live into that story, whenever they become the oppressors and whenever they fail to lift up the people who are being oppressed, the prophets call this story back again. And this time it's not so pleasant because the tables have been turned. One of, uh, one of my favorite professors from college and seminary is uh, Richard Middleton. And he's uh, working on a book right now that I had the privilege of taking a look at these past couple of weeks. And one of the things he says here in giving a wonderful summary of the importance of, of the Exodus story, I'll put it on the screen for you. It was our worship meditation this morning as well. The experience of the Exodus grounds Israel's insight that human society cannot function properly, that salvation is incomplete, unless the most vulnerable members are protected, provided for, and nourished. That is the essence of, of why we see justice in the story of the Exodus. Because God intervenes on behalf of people who are oppressed. It's not just the Israelites in Egypt in that one story. It's all oppressed people. And your choices are either get on board with being part of that work as Moses did and as we are all privileged to do in working alongside God or your other choice is do nothing which is the same thing as, as becoming one of the oppressors. And that's the Exodus movement. The third movement is law. And if we had a chance to, to, to survey the room and have you all write down what's the first thing adjective that comes to mind when you think of the, the law in the Bible, we might see things like scary or imposing or irrelevant or outdated or oppressive, mostly negative adjectives, I would bet. If I'd asked you to do that first thing when you walked in here, 
I wonder if I would have gotten a single positive adjective written down on a piece of paper to describe the law. But you have to remember that the context of the law, the way and the time in which it was received by the people of Israel was during the Exodus, during that grand redemptive story, that model for salvation. Remember how that model ended. After redemption comes allegiance and obedience. See, it's impossible to separate the giving of the law from the event of Israel's deliverance from bondage. Deliverance precedes law. So grace precedes the law. Even in the Old Testament. You may think of that as a very New Testamenty thing to say. Grace precedes the law. Obedience is an expression of gratitude. And what's more, obedience completes the salvation that was begun in Exodus. That's the sanctification stuff I was talking about. The idea that salvation is not just about the saving event, but it's also about what happens next. That's something that we miss in our Christian world a lot. That's the whole Billy Graham crusade criticism. Now, I'm not criticizing Billy Graham. Read his autobiography and I dare you to criticize him. But, I mean, just an amazing person. It's more about how we live out what happens in those places. We miss the idea that salvation is not just about the saving of but it's also about what happens next in our Christian world because I think we miss it in the Jewish world as well, into our Old Testament roots. There's a tendency among modern readers of the text of the Bible to think of the parts of the law that are very specific and very difficult to understand Uh, especially given that we're a few thousand years removed from the context in which that law was given. Laws about which fibers can be worn and how, laws about the treatment of livestock, laws about which foods can be eaten and which can't be, laws about sex, laws about how to treat your parents, laws about how to treat your children, laws about how to treat your neighbors, laws about how to treat your slaves, laws about how to care for your brother's wife if your brother dies, and that law is not what you think. supposed to marry her um, and add her to your list of wives. Uh, how do you apply that, right? <laughs> oh, it's a metaphor, right? It must be. But actually, what I would like to focus on in talking about the law, capital L, as it concerns justice, is the laws that deal with that they're actually very easy to understand. They're very clear and they're generalized enough that it's, you'd have to be... I'm not supposed to say this in front of my nephew. You'd have to be not very bright not to be able to apply them to the world today. These are, these are laws that are about the treatment of the needy or the marginalized. They're laws that are linked to Israel's own experience of suffering while enslaved in Egypt or to God's compassion and desire to liberate the oppressed. So there are prohibitions in the, in the Jewish law against wronging or abusing aliens in your midst. No, not exiles aliens, just strangers from foreign lands. There are laws against abusing uh, widows or orphans. There are laws against taking advantage of anyone who is in need. There's a law that says all debt slaves must be released at an agreed-upon time called the year of jubilee 
There are laws addressing the well-being of animals and trees and even the land itself. In these laws, there appears to be no distinction between the sacred and the secular, even between the Jew and the Gentile, because God is concerned for all the world. You might say that God shows no partiality. So at its core, although it is difficult to understand, and we often miss it, the the law in the Torah actually expresses justice. Let me give you one famous example. And I've I've mentioned this before, but you know the, the rule, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? We know it mostly because uh, Jesus called it out in his Sermon on the Mount and said, this, this is what has been said to you. I say to you even more, you know, if anybody strikes you on the cheek, you should turn to him the other cheek. And so in our Christian understanding, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing is actually like very harsh, not to mention outdated and passe. But in truth, that law was given to moderate vengeance. It's very detailed and specific. Did I put this on the screen, Avila? Do I have the eye for an eye thing on the screen? I can't remember. It's in Leviticus 24. Just read it on your own sometime. Anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return. That's, That's the basic of the law. So in other words, if, if Mark puts my eye out in a bar fight, I am not allowed to go crazy and put both of his out and pull one of his ears off. Although that's probably what I would want to do. Mark's pretty tough, though. I probably wouldn't be able to pull it off. <laughs> the law would give me permission to do exactly to him what he'd done to me, not less and not more. That's justice. <laughs> But we think of an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth is so, so harsh. I mean, that is kind of harsh if you think about it in these specific terms. But here's the other thing that's interesting about that. The last bit of that little passage that gives the eye for eye thing says, you shall have one law for the alien and for the citizen. Again, no partiality. This law, this justice must be meted out and granted not only to the chosen people, but to the aliens and strangers. I could go on and on, uh, even more than I already have. But you can see that justice does roll down out of the Torah. From the story of creation and Abraham's call, from the story of redemption in the book of Exodus, and even in the law given through Moses. From the very beginning, justice is simply built in to what it means to be a person created in God's image. It's almost not enough to say that justice is the command of God, though that would be true to say. I don't think it's quite enough. It's deeper than that. It's built into our entire worldview as people of faith. It's contained in our religious DNA. It is a non-removable component of our spiritual circuitry. And what that means is that if we're not living it out, if it's not affecting our lives at the most basic level, if our orientation toward God does not result in orientation toward the other, then we are being more than just disobedient. What we are actually doing is falling short 
of our very created purpose, of our innate nature, of what it means to be human. That is a consequence of the fall. That is sin. And now you know why we pray that confessional prayer every week. Justice rolls down out of the Torah. Next week we'll look at prophets, and in a couple weeks we'll look at some New Testament things. Let's pray together. God, the challenge of Scripture is often more than we feel we can meet. And so we are grateful to you for your grace that covers our sin because we are not capable of meeting this mark. We all fall short of this ideal, this calling. We thank you for your grace, not only for forgiveness of that fact, of those sins, but also because it is your grace that empowers us and strengthens us to do better, to do justice, to allow it to roll down not only out of the words of Scripture, but out of the life that we live as a community of faith and out of the life that we live as families and individuals. God, may we be covered by that grace and carried out to do the work you've called us to, born on the waters of justice. Amen. Well, the wonderful sign of that grace is here, as always, at our table. The sacrament of sustenance, of sanctification, is the Lord's Supper. We take communion together at Artisan every week, and it's part of our response to the Word of God. Our table is open, meaning that anybody who's seeking to follow Jesus in this place today is welcome to participate in this moment. You don't have to be a member of our church or of our denomination. You don't have to agree with every bit of doctrine that we hold to. You just have to trust in Jesus and follow him. Um, We know, however, that there are often people here who are not in that place, who are maybe spiritually seeking but who are not Christians. And uh, we want to welcome you to our service and thank you for being here. Um, And and it's not time yet for you to participate in this. So you you can be content and comfortable, I hope, to, to, to pray and think and contemplate. Um, if this would not be a movement of faith in Jesus, then it's fine for you not to participate. No one will look at you funny. Um, we will have some, uh, I think, prayer team people here. If you'd like to have personalized prayer this morning, you can go and uh, receive that. We'll continue to worship in song as well for the next few minutes. But our table is open. Come and receive this grace that's offered in the body and blood of Jesus. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.